This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 66. I don't think culture is an HR initiative. I don't agree when I see culture in a title, like chief culture officer, because I I do think that everybody owns culture. I talk about in the book that it is really a top-down, bottoms-up approach. It definitely has to be owned and aligned around at the leadership level, but you have to involve people. You have to co-create what the behaviors are, the values and behaviors, and do that process with them. Be open about what that looks like. What are examples? What are stories? How do we continue to make sure that we're actively living our culture on a daily basis? Why should all HR leaders be systems thinkers? How are processes, practices, and behaviors the building blocks of culture change? Hi, I'm your host, J.P. Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Melissa Daimler. Melissa helps leaders design, operationalize, and scale their culture. She currently serves as the Chief Learning Officer for Udemy, where she develops learning strategies for both customers and employees. And prior to Udemy, Melissa created and built learning organization and talent development functions for Adobe, Twitter, and WeWork. Melissa is also the author of a terrific book called Reculturing, Design Your Company Culture to Connect with Strategy and Purpose for Lasting Success. And what I love about Melissa's book, Reculturing, is that she takes a practitioner's view on how HR and talent leaders can tackle the challenge of culture change. And in my conversation with Melissa, we go deep on all things culture as we discussed why she is so passionate about building great cultures, why systems thinking is so important for HR leaders, Why a shift in business strategy likely means you need a shift in your culture. Why you should look for four common gaps when diagnosing culture. Why behaviors, processes, and practices all must work together to drive culture change. And why she believes culture change is not an HR initiative and much more. Melissa, welcome to Future of HR podcast. How are you? Thanks, JP. I'm doing well. It's Friday. It's all good. (laughs) <laughs> it is Friday. It's great to have you on the podcast to spend some time with you and talk about reculturing and your amazing career journey. So I want to start off as I read the book and I did read the book. I thought Thank it was terrific. You. I recommend everyone to read the book. What really struck me and just came across was your genuine curiosity, your passion, your desire to really understand what makes a great culture. Where does that passion and curiosity come from for you? Well, thanks again for reading the book. I love when I hear that because that was one of the intentions of mine when I wrote the book, that I really wanted it to be my authentic voice. I wrote a book that I wanted to read throughout my career. And for so long, I kept reading books, research papers, presentations on what culture is and what it is to lead inside of an organization by people who have never been inside of an organization. It was just all very theoretical. And so I wanted to write a book for my fellow 
operators, practitioners who are on the front lines every day trying to build and design and evolve great cultures. And I also wanted to make it simple. I wanted to not just have a very complex framework and have this just be what leaders could do. I wanted a playbook for both leaders and employees that you could take, ask really good questions, take baby steps toward designing the culture that we all want to be part of. I thought it was a good mixture of being pragmatic mm-hmm. and theoretical, but mostly pragmatic, I would mm-hmm. say. And, and that's what I loved about it. Kind of go back to where curiosity and passion and all that comes from. You talk a lot about sailing with your dad. <laughs> how did that impact? There's a lot of stories about that. It seemed like that really stuck with you, but how does that apply to organizations? You really did read the book, so thank you. Yeah, that just came up organically. I didn't realize how much we actually use sailing metaphors in our day-to-day. We have headwinds. We have to take a different tack. There's so many different things that we say that have to do with sailing. But it came up when I was writing the whole introduction of the book, like thinking about the context of culture and the system in which we're operating. And I've always thought of myself as a systems thinker. It did bring me back to so much sailing as a kid with my dad. I tell the story of when we were were sailing and he was such a patient teacher with me. And the metaphor of a sailing experience and being in an organization where you can't just focus on your crew or focus on the tiller, or focus on the wind, just like you can't just focus on the strategy or the culture or structure. All of those pieces fit together. And I think part of our job as a learning and HR leader is to make sure that as we're addressing any problem or as we're thinking about any strategy, how are we pulling on all of those different pieces as we continue to look at the whole picture? And then how do we bring everybody else along with that? It was just such a natural metaphor. For it's me. a great metaphor. And I think it's always just nice to also think about the impact our parents have on us and our thinking, right? And how we think about the world, because not everyone would have that experience or think about systems thinking from sailing. You've also worked at some amazing companies, yeah. Adobe, Twitter, I guess we'll call it X now. I don't really prefer that, but hey, I didn't buy it. You worked at I Twitter. Worked at now it's called X. There's a very different, different company okay, now. Fair point. Yeah. We work yeah. and now Udemy. And what do those experiences teach you about what great cultures and not so great cultures look like? I credit Adobe for a lot of how I think about culture and just organizational effectiveness in general. I was there for almost 11 years, which seems unheard of these days. But I I started when that company it was under 3,000 employees and a different CEO. I was an HR partner at the time. So I was able to work with all different functions and then started the OD function and then later was able to restart the learning function. And at the time, I didn't call it reculturing, but we recultured at least three times in that company. Like new CEO, biggest acquisitions we had ever done, shifting our entire business model from shipping and selling software in a box to moving into the cloud. So those were major transformations. And every one of those, we were smart enough to say, 
okay, our strategy is shifting. We should probably look at how we're working as well. It goes to one of the things I talk about in the book, which is you always need to be looking at your why, what, and how. At every one of those moments, we took a look at our values and our behaviors and said, we're tweaking the strategy. How do we tweak the culture? What are some things that we need to add in? What no longer serves us? I was able to work with Donna Morris there, who's now the XVP of HR at Walmart. And she was one of my mentors and still is. And one of the things she taught me very early on is that no matter what function you're leading, you are always a business leader first. That stuck with me the rest of my career. So I learned a ton at Adobe. And then I got to take a lot of that learning to Twitter. I think the biggest learning with Twitter was this idea of being scrappy. At Adobe, even though we started small and we were still somewhat scrappy, you still had a minute to get things together and to put a presentation together and all the details that go with that. And I just remember in my first couple of weeks at Twitter, Dick Costello, who was the CEO at the time, ran by my desk and he's like, where's that management development strategy? When are we doing that? What's going on? It was two weeks in. I met with him and I I literally had half a scrap of piece of paper with some thoughts on it. It was not a beautiful PowerPoint deck or anything. And we just had this conversation. He's like, that sounds great. I love that. Let's just go with that. We were tying it to something he was doing. He was leading some management courses. And so we were figuring out how that would work together. But I loved that freedom. I didn't at first because it's really uncomfortable, but just the ability to get your first version out there, that was a big skill and behavior that I learned at Twitter. And we did a lot of experimentation there. So that was a big piece at Twitter. I was there for four and a half years in what I would call the glory days. Definitely a lot of growth there as well. Our first billion moved from a thousand employees to 4,500 globally by the time I left. We did a lot of good culture work there with all of the changes that were happening. And then with WeWork, I can now say it was an opportunity because I think there were a lot of lessons there that reinforced what happens when you don't focus on the culture and leadership and you're just focused on, frankly, not even on the strategy, but on your financials and getting bigger and bigger. And then Udemy, the opportunity to bring that all together. And we are currently and still reculturing here. So got an opportunity to leverage what was already built with the values and behaviors and then iterate on that. Let's talk more about reculturing because Mm -hmm. your book is titled Reculturing. And people would say, what does that mean, Melissa, reculturing? You made up a word. So tell us what reculturing means for HR leaders so we get this right. That's what you do when you write a book. It didn't come naturally. I mean, I wrote a ton of drafts that did not make it into the book. Why I landed on reculturing is because I think of culture as more of an active practice that we do. It's more of a verb than a noun. It's not a thing we have. It's something that we all do. It's how we work with each other. And you're always iterating. And so that was the re and then the ing is ongoing. Doing some research just around this concept of unschooling the time. I was working with my editor. That whole movement was about how do we reset how we learn and how we teach. As we talked more about it, it wasn't about taking the entire concept of culture down because there were a lot of good things about culture. It's not about undoing something. It was more about 
building on what works. I really like that you say that the culture is a verb, not a noun. I think it's important because my least favorite interview mm-hmm. question, and I say this a lot on the podcast, is when people say, tell me about the culture. Like, it, it's not a painting I can describe. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's also going to be sort of biased on how I see yeah. the world. So I think what's great is that you really broke down culture in a great way. And you talk a lot about systems mm-hmm. thinking in the book. So why is systems thinking mm-hmm. so important to understanding culture? And, and how can you get HR people to think a little bit differently about that? When I think about systems thinking, it's really about what we talked about before with sailing. Like, how do you leverage all the different parts of an organizational system, move them forward in a way that they're working together more effectively? I've been doing this long enough, and you know this as well, that nine times out of 10, when a leader comes to you with a problem or an issue, it's never about that problem. There's something underneath that issue that's connected to five other things. It's our job to really get in there, ask the right questions, really listen actively and understand what's happening in that system that that person is living within and then tackling it way versus just thinking about this in a very myopic way. I think that's what any good OD learning practitioner does is really address issues from a very holistic systems approach. Again, you're not just addressing one piece of a system because that's connected to so many other How many times, Melissa, have you had a leader come to you and say, we need more training or more communications to fix this problem? Uh, And you're like, are we now? Yeah. That's all we need to do. And I guess (laughs) we would just do that all day long, but that's not going to solve it because you think about what are the reward systems? Are the roles clear? Are there objectives? Org structure. And then they're like, why don't I talk about those things? Yeah. Well, then you're not going to fix this problem. I think the other thing you talked a lot about in diagnosing culture, you said it's important to focus on four types of gaps. You're likely to see most Mm -hmm. of these, but tell us more about the gaps and how they impact the organization. Some of the gaps that I've seen, I mean, one in particular that I really drilled in on in the book is this gap between values and behaviors. I think that we've missed a huge opportunity to really provide a much more explicit playbook of what we expect from employees. And I got inspiration from Netflix and Patty McCord when they first came out with that culture deck. And they didn't just talk about values, but they were very explicit about the specific behaviors. I don't know if they called them behaviors at the time, but this is what we expect from every employee. And I think they went so far as to say, This is what we don't want to see. That got me thinking a lot about what does it look like to exemplify culture? We too often stop at values and we just think, oh, innovation or teamwork. What could mean teamwork in one company at your company probably means something very different at my company. And I always use the example, I was working with two companies during the pandemic. And they both had the value of innovation, but one wanted to move faster and one wanted to move slower. One felt like we weren't scrappy. We weren't getting things out fast enough. Everybody was too much of a perfectionist. We want operationalized prototyping and V1 and make it safe for people to do that. And so they created a behavior. We get to version one quickly. Other company felt like we were spending way too much money on these ideas that were going nowhere. 
and they were moving too fast. It was this bias to action thing, which I hate. I say it's bias to thoughtful action, not just action. They decided that they wanted to ask more questions. And so one of their behaviors was we asked each other why. In a meeting, if you're asking why, it's a signal of, okay, we got to slow down a little bit and make sure we really understand what kind of idea we're trying to go after here. What's the outcome we want? Two very different companies with different intentions, both with the same value of innovation. Going back to your question, there's always this gap between what is the value that you're wanting to reinforce and the the behavior that it's a really good example on innovation. That. I guess we'll talk a little bit more about leadership later, but sometimes we espouse values, but our behaviors are very different. We're a very mm-hmm. teamwork-oriented, collaborative culture, yet every decision is made by the highest, most important person in the room. The CEO is making every decision. Yet those kind of things start to chip away at the culture. Think about these four gaps. Are there other areas that people need to be sort of hypersensitive to and thinking about? How do we identify that? Because it's hard to have credibility even if you come up with these nice behaviors that tie back to values if people aren't really living them day to day. I talk about the three ways of building culture and its behaviors, processes, and practices. One of the other gaps is even if you create really explicit behaviors, if you then don't embed those into the processes that we have to do anyway, then you're likely not going to see much of them. And so going back to all the processes that we know and love, hiring, onboarding, recognizing, coaching, performance managing, talent planning, even learning. I think the behaviors need to be embedded into all of those processes for you to be able to see your culture living. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think this idea of behaviors, processes, and you talk about practices. So for someone who's kind of breaking Mm -hmm. this down, Help us think through the processes and what a practice is. We all, there's a hiring process. So we have behaviors. Yep. We come up with our, our values. We translate into actionable behaviors of what we're looking for, what someone's successful at the organization. Mm-hmm. We have a hiring process. And then what are the practices, Melissa, that you would start to think about there? Yeah, well, processes, before I go to practices, are more, I would say they're organization-wide. So no matter what function you're in, those are the processes that, we're saying you need to reinforce as an organization. Practices are more of the day-to-day work you do, and they can be more team-oriented. So I think of practices like meetings, how we communicate, how we connect, how we make decisions. Those are all opportunities to embed and reinforce your behaviors. And I'll, I'll give you an example. One of our values is always learning, no surprise. But it was interesting because when I first joined, of course, there were hundreds of different versions of what that meant. We all learn from each other and we make time to learn and it wasn't really defined. And and what we got to was one of the behaviors for us, at least right now, we engage in constructive debate because when we do debate each other and we make sure that there is a devil's advocate or somebody who is saying a contrary, making a contrary viewpoint, we learn more. That is one of our behaviors that we're trying to reinforce. And so in my team meetings and any kind of meeting, I always make sure that 
there is somebody who is playing the devil's advocate or if somebody isn't, then I will raise my hand and say, okay, I just want to take a moment and share some counterpoints here. Are we making sure that we are thinking about this from all sides? That's just a very quick and dirty example of that's a behavior that we're reinforcing in something that we do often. It's a really good example because a lot of companies would have stopped at always, always be learning. That sounds great. Like we're continuous learners. Awesome. But what you got to right. was one of my favorite quotes is around thinking about thinking is the most important type of thinking, right? And the reality is you sort of break down, okay, well, where does learning really happen? It's not because I watched a course or read a book. It's right. in a work context. Like we're, dry, we're trying to get better outcomes here. And then we learn from, right. from each other. And that's when Certainly. you have disagreement or conflicting points of view. So that yep. is a great example. Because that can yep. then drive the culture change because meetings are going to be different now the way you handle that. So that's such a great example you've laid out because I think a lot of HR leaders, we get this wrong and our leaders get it wrong too because we don't typically have the appetite to keep pushing on some of this to get to that next level behavior that would really define a culture. We're okay with the vanilla culture and values and we don't push as hard as you have there. So I think that's, that's my recommendation for people listening is to think a little bit harder about those values. Are they really actionable? And if you laid them on a sheet of paper and you take the logo away and you looked at your values, would you know it's your company? And I think if you can't do that, you may mm -hmm. not have gotten where you want to be. But uh, <laughs> talk about what your advice would be, Melissa, to an HR leader who's really looking to redesign their culture. How and where should they get started? What's this process look like? I don't think culture is an HR initiative. I don't agree when I see culture in a title. like chief culture officer, because I, I do think that everybody owns culture. I talk about in the book that it is really a top-down, bottoms-up approach. It definitely has to be owned and aligned around at the leadership level, but you have to involve people. You have to co-create what the behaviors are, the values and behaviors, and do that process with them. Be open about what that looks like. What are examples? What are stories? How do we continue to make sure that we're actively living our culture on a daily basis? First and foremost, align with the leadership team on what culture is and what it isn't. Make sure that you're all coming from the same definition, because I think so often we're still using the old definition of culture is fun. It's when everybody's happy. Let's do more happy hours and have free lunches and Make sure we have games. I feel like that's just done HR such a disservice. The fact that we're not leveraging culture as a strategic opportunity to be more effective as individuals and organizations, I think is a, a missed opportunity. Making sure you're clear on the definition, making sure that it's not assumed, it's owned by HR as a one-off initiative, that it's an ongoing thing. And then getting to work on what are those values and behaviors that you really want to reinforce throughout the organization. It's really helpful. And to your point, I think we all agree that the leadership at the top has to really shape the culture because they're making decisions. They're the rule models. They're setting the strategy. People are going to look to the, that leadership team and the CEO for direction there. Do you have any advice for someone who yeah. says, look, I see these gap between our values, behaviors, the CEO doesn't have an appetite to discuss culture. 
but you see the gaps and you want to still make an impact. Any advice there on how you start to engage a leadership team in a different way to have this conversation about culture? Don't go in with the conversation about culture for culture's sake. The questions really are, what are some of the issues that we're trying to drive as an organization? What do you want to see, CEO, or you want to see as a leadership team? We just had this conversation a couple of weeks ago with, with our e-staff around looking at our leadership segment. As you're having that conversation, some of those behaviors start to emerge. I want people to take ownership or I want to see the follow through or whatever it may be. Usually those conversations t- can tie nicely back into your behaviors. I think ideally, just like training and learning should never be something that is on top of your work. Ideally, it's embedded into your day-to-day work and you're learning, to your point, in teams and in conversation. Same with culture. It shouldn't be this initiative plopped on to everything else that's going on. Ideally, should make the CEO's job easier. It should make the executive team's job easier because you've provided clarity on what you expect from your employees. Just reframing it from, I got to push this conversation through to the leadership team to, I know that clarifying these values and behaviors is going to help them do their job better, can really help. Yeah, I think that's great. And and as we're talking about this, I was thinking about the three times you did it for Adobe. And in my experience, when I have gone through this type of reculturing experience, it's because we've shifted business strategy. And so if you start there and say, well, if we have to be more innovative, we've got to get growth, but we haven't been a growth company. Like, how do we get people to behave differently, think differently? And that's where the behaviors can shift because part of it's mindset, but then part of it then goes down to your practices and processes like you talked about. And so I love that kind of your time with the business context is so important because if we go in there and just talk about culture for culture's sake, it's not going to really land well, right? We're either helpfully driving revenue or, or cutting costs or helping the business be more successful. That's a great lens for people to yeah. put on overall. It sounds like that's what you did at Adobe, which it came through in the book. No one does anything by themselves. Yeah. We have to have these great teams to make these things happen. Exactly. Melissa, last question for you. Yeah. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? The first word that came to mind is agility. The ability to pivot quickly to something that we're talking a lot in my own team about right now is radically prioritized. There's so many things coming at us. The world is crazy. The ability to just be agile and move quickly based on what's coming at you and be able to leverage your technology and delegate down to whatever AI chatbot you need to still keep moving forward. Like at agility, I also like radical prioritization. I've not heard that one yet, but I think that is true. It's so important that HR, there's so much more on our plates today than there was that for us to be successful, we have to know where we're going to have impact and where some things we maybe just can't get to. Melissa, (laughs) thank you so much for being on the podcast today. The book is Reculturing. I can't wait for other people to read it and hear our conversation. Thank you. Thank you. This is fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Melissa for sharing her experiences and insights on what it takes to reculture your organization and how to do it. And as always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. 
And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe, share our podcast with at least one other person, or even better, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Heidi Manna. Heidi's the Chief Human Resources Officer at Jazz Pharmaceuticals. And in my conversation with Heidi, we go deep on her career, jazz future work model called Jazz Remix, and why it's important to embrace and use the voice of your employees. This was a fun and insightful conversation with one of the best in HR, and you won't want to miss it. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.